0: Over the past year and a half, there is no congregation that I have prayed for more, uh, excluding Covenant Fellowship, uh, than this congregation. And uh, part of the reason for that is, as Andy explained, there's no other congregation that is a part of Covenant Fellowship. And I can't tell you what a joy it is for me to be here uh, and to see how God has answered the prayers that have been prayed and to see and to hear reports of how God is sustaining love and faith and hope uh, in this congregation. I have the great joy of meeting regularly uh, with Tim. Uh, we meet for coffee on a regular basis, and then also just hearing updates through Andy and through others. During those times, I'm always impressed by the outstanding leadership that you are receiving, and uh, these men speak so highly of you uh, and the reports that I hear of how you are reaching out, even as you'll do so later today, and uh, how you are pursuing membership and involvement and have a vision for that, Uh, how there are those of you who are being trained for leadership uh, and being discipled in that, and on a personal note, I know that so many of you Uh, Pray for my youngest daughter in her sickness and her battle against cancer, which means so much to me. Uh, Even before the service today, hearing from so many of you, asking about how she is doing. um, Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your care. I do want to pray uh, before expounding God's word here today, so will you join me in prayer? Father, it is glorious to gather as your people this Palm Sunday. You are the God of our salvation. You are our everlasting rock, and we trust in you, and we pour out our hearts to you today. Uh, Lord, it's on my heart to pray, and perhaps others as well, who heard the devastating news uh, just this morning of the bombings in two Christian churches in Egypt. Uh, as your people gathered there on Palm Sunday, doing exactly what we are doing here, but their dozens were left dead. And we join with brothers and sisters who remain there, who have lost loved ones, and we grieve with those who grieve. We ask that you would comfort family. We ask that you would strengthen your church and that your gospel would continue to go forth. And Lord, even as we grieve You have given us hope this Palm Sunday. Your word promises that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that includes the nations, that includes Egypt, and that includes Syria, and that includes America. And today we remember the coming of your kingdom, the coming of the King. Uh, We rejoice in what the prophet Zechariah said in chapter 9 when he said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. O Father, would you, in your sovereignty, in your comfort, speak peace to the nations this day, and would you speak peace to us as your people here today. As you rule from sea to sea, come this day through your word, through your spirit, and rule in our hearts this day. Have your way in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. These verses in James chapter 3 fall in the middle of a few chapters in the book of James, chapters 3 and 4, where James is addressing the issue of relational tension and and conflict. Uh, And basically, here's the situation. People were blessing God. They were were singing praises to God. God is good. I'm blessed. Praise the Lord. And at the same time, uh, they were experiencing relational turmoil and in some ways failing to walk in kindness and in love with one another. So praising, blessing God while experiencing the difficulty of turning and blessing others. And you know, it's so often the case in our relationships, and I think think especially those we are closest to, uh, think marriage, think in the home, that we experience the same tension and this same relational strain. Something is said that is insensitive or disrespectful, and then the relationship over time, slowly begins to lose its, its warmth and its tenderness. God is speaking into that today. God is giving us help and hope from his word today. We see the same thing, this relational tension that happens on a broader cultural level in the realm of of uh, politics and current events. Something happens in some part of the country or some part of the world and immediately what happens? Uh, Opinions are shared, sides are taken, we grow angry and resentful. God is giving us help and hope today. This passage is such a gift from God. It addresses the very common challenge of relationships and respect You see in verse 7, there are these four categories of creatures that are given. That's in fact intentionally calling to mind the creation account in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28 is where God gave humanity dominion over these creatures. And we see that dominion expressed in the fact that we are able to tame these creatures creatures, but what James points out here is that in contrast to our God-given ability as image bearers to tame and subdue every creature, here, no human being can tame the tongue, and this is what James says, this is what God says, is the reason that explains our relational problems and the tensions that we currently experience in the home, in church relationships, in our culture, the untamable tongue. Our words, verse 9, says, it's, it's with our tongues that we are cursing each other. I Read that and think, oh, I've never really, I'm not cursing others. Here's what curse means. It means rather than speaking words of compassion and understanding and gentleness and grace, we are tearing one another down. We are thinking disrespectful thoughts. We are speaking words that fail to honor and fail to bless. And what James does here is he's, he's pointing out the inconsistency, the terrible inconsistency of it all, the hypocrisy behind our cursing others. With the tongue, verse 9, we bless our Lord and Father, and at the same time, with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. Notice with that, what's wrong with with cursing others. You say, well, it could hurt other people's feelings, have this effect on them. Well, yes, all that is true. But what's the reason given in the verse? The reason is those people are made in the likeness and image of God. That phrase, the likeness of God, that again is drawing to mind the language in the creation account that we are made in the image of God, which means that all people, are made with a special connection to God for the purpose of being a special reflection of God. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And that changes the way that we treat others. There's a, a pastor and author from a few hundred years ago named Thomas Manton. He comments on this verse. He says, God has honored this lump of flesh. That's you and me. He's honored this lump of flesh by stamping his own image on him and who would dare to violate the image of the great king? You cannot disrespect those made in the image of God without, respecting, without disrespecting God himself. And that's the reason here that James is outraged. Verse 10, these things ought not be so. As followers of Christ, we curse no one. We disrespect God. No one, because all people are made in the likeness of God. The teaching of this passage, here it is. The image of God is the ultimate grounds for respecting all people. Simple. The image of God is the ultimate grounds for respecting all people. And yet, as we will see, uh, profoundly complicated when each one of us moves into the application of this in our relationships. What this means is that whether it's in the home or in culture, whether it's in the church or towards unbelievers, whether it's those you agree with or those you disagree with, whether it's people you like or people you dislike, the image of God changes how we relate to them. The image of God teaches us to view even our enemies from the standpoint of what they were made for and what they could one day be. And what this this doctrine of the image of God does is that it empowers us and teaches us that those who appear undignified and unlovely to us have been given a a dignity and a loveliness by God, by the Creator Himself. They are loved by Him. John Piper says, The imago Dei, the image of God, is that in man which constitutes him as he whom God loves. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. This doctrine of the image of God is absolutely fundamental to treating others as they ought to be treated. It's the doctrine that leads us to advocate for the dignity and sanctity of human life at every stage. The image of God is the reason we treasure pre-born children and lament the tragedy of abortion. The image of God is the reason we encourage adoption and orphan care. The image of God is the reason we value people with special needs. The image of God is the reason we promote racial reconciliation. The image of God is the reason we care for the poor and the imprisoned. The image of God is why we serve immigrants and refugees. The image of God is why we care for those who are at the end of life. Every life is to be valued because every life is stamped with the image of God. And here in James 3, the specific application of this doctrine, which is a large one in, in Scripture, functions in a very specific way, and the application is this, that the image of God means that Christians are required to show respect even where it's most difficult even where it's most difficult there's a man who wrote a book on the image of god his name is john kilner he's a leading scholar on what it means to be made in the image of god commenting on this verse in james 3:9 he says it is precisely those who apparently warrant cursing most uh, those with the least godlike attributes whom james is identifying as being in god's likeness the passage appears to be stressing that the reason for respecting people is rooted in something other than their attractive attributes See, so often we do this. Am I going to respect you? Well, that depends. How attractive are your attributes? How much do you merit that respect based off of uh, what you are doing and what you are saying? Respect for others, we learn here, is grounded in their unchangeable status as image bearers. And because they bear God's image, uh, the people that you are most likely to curse are, in fact, the people that you must bless. See, here's the reality. Anyone can bless people who are easy to bless. See, Some of us are doing this. We even think to the people in our lives, well, I'm blessing these people and respecting these people. Uh, Yeah, it's the people that agree with us. It's the people who say and do all of the right things. You know what Jesus says? He says even pagans do that. It's a good thing to do, uh, but even the pagans do that. Matthew 5, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And here's what Jesus says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. In other words, Christians go further. Christians look at those who disagree with them, looking at those who, who we know are wrong. Those who are immoral, those who say wrong things or have been silent on issues that matter greatly, those who have been rude and uncaring and haven't shown us respect. Christians look to such people with eagerness to respect and to listen and to seek to understand. Christians bless others and we love others, not even necessarily because we see things in them that evoke blessing or because they are so lovable, but why? Because they have been made in the noble image of God. And let us not forget, brothers and sisters, that God loved us in Christ when we were unlovely, when there was nothing to commend us to Him, when we brought nothing to the table but our own sin. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Reaching out to the unlovely, reaching out to the sinner, reaching out to those of us who were dead wrong, running our hell-bound race. He pursued us. He sought us out. He related to us graciously. And now our calling is to turn and to show that same extraordinary love and grace to those He has placed in our lives. And in some ways, the reason this is on my heart Uh, One is that I'm always preaching to myself first and foremost, Uh, and y'all can listen in and hopefully it's helpful and you benefit as well. Uh, But I need this message. And it is in some ways hard for me to imagine a message that is more timely than this one. Uh, I have been convicted in my own preparation of this message, of my own sinfulness. What I've realized is that too often we are not skilled at seeing non-Christians as image bearers. Um, And too often, our tone in disagreement does not represent Christ and honor Him well, especially in social media. Too often, we, we think and we say things that are the equivalent of cursing people who are made in the likeness of God, which always brings dishonor on the name of our Lord and Father. Think about it. How many times have we said or thought something like, well, I can't respect that person until they fill in the blank. Or, I don't even want to hear their opinion on this issue until they fill in the blank. Why do we have those thoughts? I'm saying we, including myself here. Why do we say those things? It's because we obviously have not learned to see and to treat others as those made in the likeness of God. And I think, in particular, Christians ought to be ashamed of themselves for defending and minimizing the seriousness of public speech that demeans others. This is one of the things that I saw that broke my heart throughout this entire recent political season, seeing too many Christians praising politicians for speaking their mind, telling it like it is, even when that speech involves Speech that is brash and proud and disparaging of minorities and demeaning to others. It's one thing for unbelievers to speak that way, but for followers of Christ to approve and to praise it, it James' words apply directly these things ought not be so. It is cursing people who are made in the likeness of God. We have to care about kindness. We have to care about respect. Don't you dare dismiss that as political correctness. The badge of the Christian is that you are kind to everyone and that you are gentle even with your opponents. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says this, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Kind to who? Everyone. Able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So, okay, respecting the image of God in others doesn't mean that there's never a time for correction, uh, that you never bring adjustment to others or speak truth to others, but correcting his opponents with gentleness. You do it with gentleness and with patience, and we do it motivated by kindness. So there's a place for critique in relationships, but our motive needs to be to serve and to help others, never to make other people look foolish, never to try to score points in a conversation. The image of God is the ultimate grounds for respecting all people. And that respect, that love, that transformed worldview that changes the way you view every person in your life is what God is producing in us through this passage. And it's what He's empowering us by His Spirit to do, to treat others, even at the most difficult places. I know it's not easy, to treat others with kindness and with gentleness and with the respect that comes from seeing all people as made in the image of God, so that we avoid the kind of hypocrisy of blessing God while we are cursing those who are made in the image of God. Let me give you an example from from my own life where I have failed in this. There, there is uh, an artist who was alive until just a few years ago. Uh, A man I have, so I'm confessing this, I've always looked down on, I've always viewed with elitist artistic disdain. And I'm sure this is gonna, I'm putting myself out here, uh, this is gonna sound strange to some of you. Uh, If you love his art, I won't hold it against you. Uh, So here's the thing, ever since I was in art school, I have not liked Thomas Kincaid. All right, this is my confession to you. His art doesn't resonate with me at all, and I'm afraid I have terribly strong opinions about it. Uh, disproportionately strong that ought not be the way that it is. And I have several friends who, upon discovering this, have inundated me uh, kindly with Thomas Kincaid gifts, of course, because this is the kind of uh, church that I lead. So I have Thomas Kinkade puzzles, Thomas Kincaid clock, Thomas Kincaid all kinds of things. This is what I get for it's like God's judgment upon me for, for sharing this with others and having this, this struggle. I... Uh, but this is, the, this is the truth of it. Here's a man I looked down upon. I didn't have any respect or appreciation or sympathy for him. Not long ago, that changed. Uh, it truly changed. I actually read this book, at, uh, and I was taken off guard by how deeply I was affected uh, and convicted by the content of this book. It was a biography. It was written by a man named Eric Kuske, Called Billion Dollar Painter The Triumph and Tragedy of Thomas Kincaid. And what I found changed was my attitude toward the man. Uh, it, it's, the book is a, is a tragic and heartbreaking story, but it's told sympathetically and it's told respectfully uh, by, by one of Kincaid's friends. And the, the author worked very closely with Kincaid for 16 years. He tells you about the trailer home where Kincaid was raised by a single mother. Uh, he tells you about Kincaid's love for nature at a young age, and his eye for beauty, and his natural artistic gifting. In school, uh, as a young boy, Tom Kincaid would draw caricatures. This is, how he f- this is the first money he made off of art. He would draw caricatures of the teachers that the other students didn't like, and then sell them to the other <laughs> students. You know, it's becoming really hard to not like this guy. And uh And he always took an interest in others. He had a genuine desire to bless others through his art. The author talks not only about uh, Kincaid's immense artistic and business talent, but also just how Kincaid was this regular, down-to-earth kind of guy, not a mean bone in his body, never anything elitist about him. In the book, I also learned about Kincaid's serious immorality, this heartbreaking story that led to the collapse of his marriage and his business and his health and ultimately his life. But I read in that book... Um, about a Facebook group, I Hate Thomas Kincaid, that sprang up, all of the disdain, all of the, the ridicule uh, that he experienced, especially when he was at his lowest. And, I, and I'm reading this book, not as a fan of Kincaid, but realizing I'm seeing myself among the haters and the disrespectful and the unkind. And at the same time, I'm finding my my sympathy and my respect for the man grow, which is what always happens. You know, if you want to maintain a, a disrespect for someone, the worst thing that you can do is start to get to know them, because the more you get to know them, the more you will see the image of God in them, the more human they will become to you. It always is what happens when we see others in the likeness of God, the image of God is the ultimate grounds for respecting all people. So what I want to do here, I'm going to move into application in specific categories. Uh, Here's what I did. I made a list of the groups we are perhaps most likely to fail to bless and to respect and to honor as those made in the image of God. This isn't a comprehensive list, but this is the list that I came up with. So here, let me give you the five, and then I'll walk through them. First, uh, those who reject or ridicule our faith. Second, internet trolls. Third, the Dallas Cowboys. Fourth, political leaders. And then fifth, the immoral. All right, so it should be a good time. Here we go. Let me move through each one of these. First, those who reject or ridicule our faith. Uh, People made in the likeness of God refers to all people, including non-Christians and respect for those who are not believers comes from seeing the shared identity that we have with them as image bearers. Did you know we have a lot in common with non-Christians? We have the same shared dignity. We have the same problem of sin. We have the same need for a Savior, And while fallen humanity apart from Christ is incapable of any spiritual good, they are incapable of of pleasing God, they remain capable of knowledge and virtue and beauty by God's common grace. Here's the reality. Non-Christians are often noble and kind and intelligent and insightful. And we have much to learn from them. They do praiseworthy and commendable things because they are made in the image of God. And here's my my concern. If you don't see and celebrate the way that non-Christians love others and do things that promote human flourishing and create astonishing beauty and speak words that are true, if you don't do that, it's highly unlikely that you will respect them. And it's highly unlikely that you will be faithful and fruitful in your witness to them. This is one of the striking things about the Apostle Paul in his outreach. In Acts 17, he's in Athens, and he says to them, I see that in every way you are very religious. He's speaking on believers, but he notes that they are religious, and then he goes on to affirm the good and the true that is in their false belief system. He points out that they long to know God, uh, that they know that God is greater than people, that they know that people are created to relate to God. There's this respect and this affirmation of them as image bearers. And even when we are ridiculed for the sake of Christ or needing to defend the faith, our tone needs to be informed by the fact that we're speaking to image bearers whom we have no warrant to to curse or to ridicule or to insult. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Colossians 4, 5 and 6 says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So how are non-Christians to be treated? With grace and with respect and with dignity. And this in turn becomes an extraordinary, powerful witness. Uh, One of my favorite examples of the evangelistic power of seeing others in the image of God is the story of the conversion of Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, uh, which you might be familiar with. Her Her entire story is told uh, in the book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Rosaria was a professor at Syracuse University. She was a lesbian. Uh, she viewed Christians as, quote, bad thinkers who are sheltered from the world's real problems, and she was preparing to write a book analyzing, quote, the hermeneutic of hatred that the religious right uses against their favorite target, queers or at that time, people like me, she says. Uh, Professor Butterfield wrote an article at one point in the local newspaper, and as a result, she received boxes uh, just inundated with mail. And so she's there, she's sorting through her mail, creating two different piles, the hate mail and the fan mail. There's a hate mail over here, fan mail over here. She came across a letter that defied those categorizations. It was from a man named Ken Smith, who lived in Syracuse, New York, and it stumped her. She said it was the kindest letter of opposition she had ever received. And the letter asked questions about her presuppositions, but Ken didn't argue with her or attack her. He respected her as one made in the image of God. And this, uh, this gentle, genuine letter initiated a friendship then between Ken and his wife uh, and Rosaria, two years of hospitality and face-to-face conversations, uh, during which time Rosaria reflected on and said, Ken stressed that he accepted me as a lesbian, but that he didn't approve of me as a lesbian. He held that line firmly, and I appreciated that. And what Rosaria shares is that this absolutely shattered her paradigm for who Christians are, and it eventually led her to turn from her sin and to trust in Christ for her salvation. And in the same way that, that Ken's letters stood out among all those letters, so Christians are to stand out. You and I are to stand out in this culture because we simultaneously insist on truth, yes, and respect towards those who disagree or think otherwise, and especially towards those who ridicule or reject our faith. Let me move through some of these categories quickly. Second, internet trolls. Uh, Heads up, there are people on the internet who intentionally sow discord and try and harass and upset others by posting things that are inflammatory or make comments that are off topic and will not contribute helpfully to the conversation. Obviously, we shouldn't do that. Don't be a troll. All God's people said amen. But also, here's the thing. We need to consider how we treat those who act foolishly online. Too often, what do we do? We meet disrespect with disrespect. (laughs) We meet folly with folly. And the internet is one of the places we are most likely to be brash and to be unkind. Whether we do it in the name of truth or whether we're doing it for fun. The screen makes it so difficult to remember. We're always dealing with real people made in the image of God. And it's so often the case that we stoop to the level of others. And if you do that... You will be cursing those who are made in the image of God. Third, Dallas Cowboys. Here I just want to say, I, I remember when I first learned that Tony Romo was a part of Pastor Matt Chandler's church. Now, you might not all know the name Matt Chandler, but he leads a, a group of churches called Acts 29, faithful pastor and, and brother. And I learned that, that Tony Romo was a friend of Matt Chandler. They vacationed together. He's a faithful member of the church there. And and hearing this news, it just did not compute. I think it was just this weekend then uh, that I read uh, an open letter that Jason Witten, tight end for the Cowboys, uh, wrote commending Tony Romo. It's a really well done, you know, letter. These things for me are paradigm shattering. You know, either you are a a Dallas Cowboy or you are a decent human being. (laughs) You know, Uh, But you can't be both, right? (laughs) Be aware that sports has become a realm in which it is often considered acceptable to hate players and to wish injury upon them. You know, just consider the the broadly accepted practice of attacking people who are wearing a jersey for an opposing team. What does that say? It says that that people are not worth any more than our perception of the team uh, that we root for. Christians know better. The image of God demands respect. Fourth, political leaders. Uh, Prior to this past election, presidential election, I began preparing my heart, and it was a a deep heart work and preparation that was required, uh, no matter who won, to honor and to pray for our next president with thanksgiving in obedience to 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. One of the things that we do uh, at at Covenant Fellowship, and if you haven't done it here, you will uh, in time, is to pray publicly for our presidents. Uh, thanking God for them, honoring them, asking God to bless them and help them. We did it with our former president. We do it with our current president. And if that practice doesn't land well on you, uh, the problem is not with the pastor. It is with God and His Word. Uh, Here's 1 Peter 2, 17, written to Christians who are familiar with persecution. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, Honor the emperor. So, honor everyone. Okay, but there's certain people I am filing out of my mind here. And then he comes back to these persecuted Christians and clarifies, honor the emperor. And there's a scene in Acts 23 that always affected me as well, where Paul stands before the high priest, Ananias. And Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him. Paul then says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And this is Acts 23, beginning in verse 4. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. That's this biblical principle of honoring those in authority, however strong our disagreements with them may be. There was a story I once heard of a pastor who, before a a church service, interacted with an 11-year-old boy. Uh, it was his first time there. He was brought by another young man to that church. This young man had never been to church before. Uh, they were on the same soccer team. And this, this kid who's at the church for the first time shares that he needs prayer because his dad had left home and he didn't know what his family was going to do. And so the pastor prays for him and then the boy turns and goes back to his seat. As he turns to go back, this boy... Uh, happened to be wearing a shirt that was celebrating the inauguration of a president who was unpopular with most of the people in that particular uh, predominantly white, blue-collar congregation. So he turns, he's wearing this shirt. As the boy, first time there, goes and heads back down the aisle to his seat, perhaps to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ for the very first time, a man in the church walks past him, looks at the shirt with disdain, and says, we need to get you a better shirt. And and the pastor in that moment was rightly outraged. This boy is hurting. This boy needs grace. He needs Christ. And you would drive him away from Christ because all you can think about is the president on his shirt. And then we think, how many times have I thought or done something similar? Friends, Christians need to be on guard. Guard your heart. Watch your attitude. When it comes to politics, I, you know, I've told the church family at Covenant Fellowship, which is a diverse group politically, and I love that about the church, uh, no, it's not wrong for you to listen to conservative talk radio, but you had better be sure the tone does not rub off on you, otherwise it will devastate your witness to Christ. Tone and respect matter more than we know. Self-righteousness drives more people away from Christ than we know. And here's what we need to consider, regardless of what your political persuasion is. Sometimes the most powerful public witness has to do with how we lose and how we respond as Christians when undesirable candidates and undesirable policies win the day and how we relate to those that we disagree with on issues. Remember your witness to Christ. Remember the call to respect. And then the last application heading, the immoral. And I'm thinking here, especially about those who who celebrate and defend immorality. Too often, Christians can tend to view them as the other, them as the enemy. But there is a better way. Do you remember during the summer of 2012, there was that big Chick-fil-A controversy? CEO Dan Cathy, leading Chick-fil-A, uh, stated that God is the one who defines marriage, and immediately mayors in places like Chicago and Boston threatened to boycott Chick-fil-A. So that was when all, there were eat-ins and kiss-ins uh, that followed. Do you know what Dan Cathy did? He called Shane Windmeyer. Shane had been a leader in the LGBTQ movement for many years. Uh, he's the one who had initiated a national campaign against Chick-fil-A, He's the founder of Campus Pride, which is, quote, uh, the leading national organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, transgender college students. Dan Cathy called him, and they spoke on the phone for over an hour. And Dan never asked Shane to back off of his opposition of Chick-fil-A, but rather listened intently to Shane's concerns. Dan treated Shane as someone made in the image of God. And soon, as the story goes, it's incredible, Dan and Shane became friends. And then Shane joined Dan as his honored guest at the Chick-fil-A Bowl. And in his article entitled, Dan and Me, My Coming Out as a Friend of Dan, Kathy, and (laughs) Chick-fil-A, Shane described the friendship that he and Dan had formed. He said, Dan, expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, and even my husband, Tommy. In return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ. Uh, Dan expressed, he says, Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. Extraordinary. You know, one more reason to eat at Chick-fil-A, right? But you got to wait until tomorrow (laughs) to do it. Um, The power of treating others with respect as those who are made in the image of God. The image of God reminds us that people are more than the worst things that they have done or are doing. And that includes each one of you. We are more than the worst things that we have done or are doing. And those who are pursuing lives of immorality need to be treated with dignity as those made in the image of God. This is true for the sexually immoral, for adulterers, for homosexuals, for thieves, for the greedy, for drunkards. In fact, those categories that I just gave are the exact categories that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And he says to the church, after giving this list, sexually immoral, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, and such were some of you. In the church, and such were some of you. Remember your past. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, never forget that the only difference between us and those who are lost in sin is what God in His grace has done. The only difference. Such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Christ, our Savior. Changes everything in how we relate to others. Let me just close with a positive point here to mention this, that blessing those made in the image of God blesses God himself. It removes the hypocrisy of blessing God and and cursing others and is to God himself a blessing. Verse 9 does point to the good use of the tongue. It's not just don't curse, don't disrespect. With the tongue, we can bless. With the tongue, we bless God. And so the way to eliminate that hypocrisy is to see all people as those made in the image of God and to bless others. You set yourself to blessing others. You speak words that will encourage and that will edify, that will build up, that will give life to others. You honor others. As Romans 12 says, you outdo one another in showing honor. You respect others through the ministry of listening. You pray for others. And as you bless others in that way, as you pursue love in hard places, God himself is greatly honored. Some of you may feel like there is a relationship where this is impossible. With man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. God has placed His Spirit within you. He is giving you strength in Christ, even now, through the power of His Spirit, to see people with new eyes. He is giving you an outpouring of His Spirit of love. He is strengthening you so that you will not be discouraged where this is difficult. Yes, we will stumble and sin in many ways, but praise God that His grace is greater than our sin, that His mercy forgives us when we fail, that His power is changing us, that that same power is changing us in this way, helping us to see and to respect all people as those made in the image and likeness of God. Amen. May God bless his word.